Amen. And I too would like to welcome you to Lakeside Christian Church this morning. We are in a series entitled The Way of Wisdom in Everyday Faith. We began it last week and we're going to continue for weeks to come throughout the summer. But one of the things that we're insisting as we approach the book of Proverbs is that Proverbs is not about escaping everyday life. Proverbs is about engaging everyday life. Some of us think that when we gather together in a church or we open up our Bibles that we will hear about things that are of an exclusively spiritual nature. They'll teach us things about what it is that we're supposed to know about God. But if we want to learn about how to get along better with one another, about how to communicate well, about how to organize our lives well, we immediately think of going somewhere else other than the scripture, somewhere else other than God. But we have, and this isn't the only place in the Bible, but here a whole book devoted to demonstrating that God cares about the routine and the ordinary, the everyday experiences of our lives. And he has wisdom to share with us about our everyday lives. And so when we look to Proverbs, as it talks about engaging life, God desires us to do that with wisdom. And this is how we've defined wisdom. It is the right and proper application of knowledge. Every one of those words is crucial. There is a wrong way and an immoral way that we could apply knowledge. It's possible to have knowledge that we never apply. And it's possible that we're ignorant of things. There's just some things that we don't know about. And so wisdom brings all of these things together. The right and proper application of knowledge. And so last week we considered where the book of Proverbs begins to say to us that wisdom, true wisdom, begins in doubt about ourselves. In Proverbs chapter 3 we saw that we were encouraged to not lean on our own understanding, to not be wise in our own eyes. And so it begins in doubt, it then looks to others and their way of life, the lessons that they have learned, but ultimately It trusts in God. This is the foundation of wisdom, that we doubt ourselves, that we look to others, and that we trust in God. So that as we approach our topic today, wisdom and work, we want to come to it with an open mind saying, God, what does your word have to say to us about work and how we are to engage in it. And so I invite you to open to Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 3. If you're using one of the Bibles that's been provided for you, you'll find it on page 539. Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 3 on page 539. It's short and sweet like most of the Proverbs are. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. The first thing that we can see from this verse is that wisdom sees a connection between work and grace. Or another way to say it as it is on your handout, work is not the enemy of grace. So that whatever we learned last time about doubting ourselves and trusting in God, that we're to be wholly reliant upon him, 
that in no way negates our responsibility to then work and to plan. The very statement that we're to commit our work to the Lord and that our plans will be established is the writer's telling us, whatever else I'm saying, don't hear me discouraging you from working hard. Don't, don't let me be the one who's discouraging you from making plans. And so one of the characters all throughout the Proverbs that gets the most attention is the sluggard. And not ever in a very nice light. And so the writer of this book wants nothing that he says about God, about the world, and about us to discourage us from seeing our responsibility to work and to plan. So wisdom sees a connection between work and grace. That those two things are not enemies with one another. And I want to demonstrate that in two ways. First, the nature of our own, what motivates us as people. And then second, what we understand about God and grace. But just in the plane dealer, two Sundays ago, or last Sunday, in the plane dealer, it had an article about the top workplaces in Northeast Ohio. And so they surveyed employees and they asked them, do you like where you work? And if you like where you work, why do you like where you work? And so then they listed all the top places. But what they found was fascinating when they determined why it is that people enjoyed the place that they did. And there's a number of reasons here, but basically the number one reason in our own region at this very moment in time that people say they're happy with where they work is because they see their employer's health and that the company is moving in a positive direction. And then it gives some reasons in that we're in an economic climate where people's job security is not quite what they thought it was a few years ago. So that now people care more about believing that there's a paycheck coming than how much the paycheck is. So that their satisfaction in the work that they're doing is connected to believing that who they work for is moving in a good and right direction. It just motivates them to show up and to be on time and to be diligent and to want to work hard. Well, when we open up our Bibles and it gives us two different pictures of servants or masters and it describes that Satan and all that he represents is something that never pays out, that there are no benefits for, there's no perks in doing, and it's heading in the wrong direction. And all of us were once servants of that way of life, servants of our own sin, of our own pride, of our own selfishness. If we now in the gospel go from no longer working and serving that, and now we work for and serve the king of kings, why would we expect that we would work any less? Wouldn't you expect that if you've now gone from working for someone who the Bible says the wages of sin is death, there's nothing positive about working for your own selfishness or working for the purposes of the devil, and now you believe that you're actually submitting to the king of kings. You're submitting to one who has forgiven you of all of your sins. You're submitting to someone and working for someone who genuinely loves you and whose outlook is positive. The only one who can keep all the promises he's making to you. If he's who you're working for, 
then why would we work any less for him? Wouldn't we just want to work more for him? Wouldn't we, wouldn't we be just more excited to work for him whose outlook is ultimately positive, who alone can secure and guarantee our futures? I mean, think about it. How many of you, honestly, if you knew that as you went out into your jobs this week, there'd be no paycheck at the end of the week? How many of you would still be excited to go? You say, well, if I'm not getting paid anyway, I'll go do something else. Because many people have to make the choice of choosing to work to acquire an income, but they don't necessarily feel that what they're doing is what they're most passionate about and what they're called to do. And when we realize that all the effort we put into either promoting ourselves or serving our own sinful desires never pays, there's no check at the end of the week when what we're investing in is sin. All we get is punishment at the end of it. The wages that it offers are awful. Then stop. Do something else, but don't keep investing your energies and your talents and your strength in something that has no positive outlook to it. Invest in something that will last. And so we who are motivated by believing in the promise of the future should be the most motivated when we follow God. When we say we believe that he has the future secure and wisdom sees this connection that we are all the more motivated because we serve a gracious God. Secondly, wisdom sees this connection because grace does something for us. While we can't earn God's grace, we can't earn it, and so we describe it as a gift, there are some gifts that we receive that enable us to do something. In other words, if in your handout today as you walked into the church, you were given a gift card, to a restaurant. You would have received a gift. Somebody just would have chosen to give it to you. It was gracious of them. But now if you receive that gift, that gift gives you the ability to do something. You can go have lunch. You can go have dinner. You can plan around now your ability to do something. So you didn't earn it. You didn't work for it. Somebody gave it to you. And so it was an act of grace. But that act of grace is not in any way opposed to then you going out and doing something with it. That was the whole point of the gift. Somebody wanted to give you something so that you could enjoy it, so that you could do it. And that's how the Bible talks about God's grace in our lives. He's given us his grace. He's forgiven us of our sins. And he's given us now his Holy Spirit so that we could do something. So that we could work. And it says in Ephesians 2 that he, he has works that he <clears throat> created us for, that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And so there's no reason to, to think that believing strongly that God loves us unconditionally and graciously, freely, that there was nothing we could ever do to earn it, and then believing that we should be as disciplined and passionate and excited and hardworking as we can possibly be for him. Those two things aren't opposed to each other. A person who's a legalist is someone who believes that their hard working is what earns God's grace. But you're not a legalist if you believe God's grace enables you to work hard. 
You're a legalist if you believe your hard work earns God's grace, but you're not a legalist if you believe that the grace of God enables you and I to work. Some of you have received, like I've been the beneficiary of a scholarship for school. That's another gift. I didn't earn it. But the assumption in receiving it is then I would study, that I would read, that I would write papers. If I received it, and then somebody said, so how was school today? Well, I skipped class. What do you mean you skipped class? I haven't gone for a couple of weeks. Why? I don't want to go to school. Then why did you take a scholarship? It doesn't make sense. Why did you receive it if you are not now willing to do what it enables you to do? And wisdom sees this connection. It recognizes that the God in whom we are supposed to trust is also the God to whom we commit our work and who establishes our plans. But it should not be that because we go from being guilt-ridden over our sin to now accepting the gospel that we somehow become more lazy, that we become more apathetic, that people would look at us and say, you tried a lot harder when you were sinning. (laughs) You were so much more creative when you were trying to get in trouble than you are now when you say you're you're following the king of kings. How, How does that happen? I got the advice from one man who managed a staff of 100 people, and he said one of the things that he always paid attention to in trying to figure out how hard his employees would work for him is when they would do something recreational. And for him, he was a basketball player. But he said, I can always tell how hard somebody will work by how they play basketball. And what he meant was, if they don't hustle and work hard when they're having fun, then they're not going to hustle and work hard when they're not having fun. If you can't have fun in a good and energized and disciplined way, then there's no reason to believe that you're going to apply the kind of effort needed when times do get tough. And so when we talk about the relationship that we have with Christ as a a relationship based on love, that we want to serve him, that we love being with him, then it is absolutely appropriate for us to look at our own lives and say, to what extent are we passionate about it? Are we working hard or are we just looking to take a break from it because actually... We're not as excited about it as maybe we said. But there is a connection between work and grace. God's grace gives us the ability to offer our lives for him. And so you'd see if you look up in Romans 12 after Paul's taken 11 chapters to unfold grace in all of its fullness. What it means for the individual, what it means for the nations and what it means at the end of the world the very first thing after he's explained grace in its fullness in Romans 12 is then you and I ought to offer our whole lives as a sacrifice of worship to him, which is our reasonable service. And so wisdom sees that connection. Wisdom also sees a connection between work and meaning. Turn, uh, you actually don't have to turn the page, but look back to chapter 14, Proverbs, and verse 23. Now this connection between work and meaning. Proverbs 14, 23 says, In all toil there is profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. In all toil there is profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. Work 
gives words their meaning. Work gives words their meaning. If we say to someone, I'll be there for you, and we don't do it, our words are meaningless. If we say to someone, we will pray for them, we'll fast for them, we'll call them, and we don't do it. We don't do the work that we said we were going to do. Our words do not have meaning. People will increasingly distrust us. And they'll just, they'll hear us say the things we say and say, oh, they just always say things like that. But you can't count on them. For our words to have meaning and to have impact and to have power, they have to be followed up on by work. And this proverb says, in all toil there is profit. In every effort, in every striving, there is profit. Mere talk tends only to poverty. And here the point is again, not what work you do or don't do, in in terms of what profession you choose, but how you engage it. What God cares about as it relates to our work is not so much whether one of us will work in engineering and one of us will work as a teacher and one of us will work in the ministry. The question is, as we engage whatever field we're in, are we toiling? Are we doing it with effort, believing that there is no substitute for hard work? for trying and giving everything we can because mere talk, even as it relates to spiritual things, tends only to poverty. Just talking about God, never actually going out and sharing our faith means people aren't hearing the gospel. And so we have to recognize that there is a relationship between work and meaning. For our words to matter, they have to be followed up by Work, And then wisdom sees a connection between work and living. Turn back to verse 4 of chapter 14. One of my most favorite verses in Proverbs. Proverbs 14, 4. Where there are no oxen, the manger is clean. But abundant crops come by the strength of the ox. We might not talk about oxes very much in our vernacular and everyday experience. But here's the point. If what you want is everything to be clean and sterile and sanitary, and you never want to get dirty, you have no ox, you've got no dirt. But without it, you also get no work done. There's something about work and getting messy that go hand in hand. So much so that some of us, when we're doing a certain project, you'll hear somebody say, did you bring your work clothes today? Which means what? The clothes you don't care if they get dirty or ripped. Are you dressed to work? If you don't want to, if if your life's goal or purpose is to just stay as clean and safe and sanitary as you can, then you can do that, but also no work will get done. But if there is a desire to see things done, to see goals in our own lives reached, goals in our families reached, goals as a church reached, if there's a desire to do something, then that work will require a certain amount of messiness that we then have to ask ourselves, are we prepared for it? 
And so are we willing to take having an ox or having whatever it is we need to do the work and embrace the messiness that comes but rejoice when there's food to eat at the end of the day? And so work sees a connection. Wisdom sees that connection between work and living. And then if you turn to Proverbs 22 and verse 13. Actually, maybe this one's my favorite. (laughs) I love Proverbs. But I just laugh when I hear this one. The sluggard says, there's a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets. And so he stays home and he doesn't do anything. He's afraid about what's outside the door. And so on the one, there's, there's a desire not to get dirty. And then in this one, there's a desire to stay safe. And it's the sluggard. It's the, the one who's lazy who says, there's a lion outside. I should be killed in the streets. Find some kind of excuse, some kind of justification to say before they ever do it, it's not worth it. It's not worth trying. If we try, we'll get made fun of. If we try, someone will pick on us. If we try, we fail. But looking for all of these reasons to justify a lack of work, a lack of activity. And for those of you who know your Bibles well, for me, this verse always then picks up the contrast of the life of Daniel, who wasn't a sluggard and who knew there were lions. And he still lived out his faith. The sluggard fears lions that don't actually exist. And the person of faith in the living God doesn't fear lions that do. Isn't it just, are you convicted when you read Daniel's story? (laughs) To say, does my faith live out like that? that I am not afraid of even very real danger that exists when for so many they're paralyzed by what-ifs and possibilities that never actually manifest themselves. But at the very foundation of living is this willingness to embrace vulnerability, to take the risks, so that if we were to say about relationships, What if this relationship falls apart? What if I make an effort to get to know this person and it falls apart? I don't want to deal with that and so I'd rather just not get to know them in the first place because of the pain that could come if ever that relationship breaks down. And so we can always come up with ways and find excuses to not embrace the things that are in front of us. But Proverbs insists that real living and living with wisdom embraces that life includes messiness, it includes vulnerability. And so we have to still pursue it and to work to see God's action done in our lives. These are just a few of the verses that Proverbs says about work. But if we were to summarize it, we were to say, empowered by grace is the first line. What is it that we would say the grace of God empowers us to do? What is it that his gift to us gives us the ability to do? There's some answers that all of us could give. 
But there's some answers that will be specific to us. And so if we were to challenge ourselves with thinking that way, wanting to live wisely, wanting to rightly apply the knowledge that we have, what do we believe we are empowered to do by the grace of God uniquely so that we don't continue to have this false uh, combative relationship between work and grace but that we see how they go together. What is it that God's spirit in me enables me to do? What is it about the truth that all of my sins are forgiven enables me to do? What is it about the truth that I will live with him forever? That every work and every treasure that is now laid up is laid up in a place where nothing can corrupt it. What does that truth empower me and you to do? And then secondly to say, what is your life's purpose? Empowered by grace and fulfilling your life's purpose, what is that? What is it that you feel called to do? That you on this earth are here uniquely to do in your time and space. When I think about this in terms of writing, the way, the way that it makes sense to me that I've described it before is that if, if I were to begin writing a book and I were to die before the book was done, nobody else should be able to finish it. If what I'm doing is not just copying somebody else and just plagiarizing another material, if I'm trying to offer something that is from all the experiences I've had and the relationships that I've had and God's working out in me, what am I doing that uniquely nobody else is doing? Believing that there's a purpose in that. There's a reason I'm living in this time and space and not 200 years ago or 200 years later. And so what is it that he has called me to do? If you, if you believe that your occupation and your vocation can come together that there is something that you're called to do that you're not engaging in because you think there's a lion outside if you do or you know it's unsafe in doing, then the challenge is to consider is your faith big enough to pursue what it is you feel your life is purposed for, trusting that God will work out those details. Trusting that if he's sovereign over all, he can bring together, if you pursue and seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, he can add all those other things to you. And then for some of us, we've already made those choices. We've already defined our relationships and who we're committed to. And we have to ask ourselves, are we living out that purpose? Are we in any way wanting to abandon it because we've seen the vulnerability that that exists with it, the messiness that comes with it. And so for us, fulfilling our life's purpose is not engaging something new, but actually avoiding the voices in our own minds that are telling us to run and to flee and to leave the very commitments that we have made. And so our challenge in fulfilling our life's purpose, empowered by God's grace, is to endure, is to press on, is to forgive, is to forbear, and then, empowered by his grace and fulfilling our life's purpose, the Proverbs tells us to commit our work to the Lord. Focus on what you can do. 
focus on what I need to focus on what I can do and leave the results to him. That's what it means to commit it to him. There's a twofold aspect. There's, there's doing it in his name. It's hard to commit your work to the Lord if you're doing something you know he wouldn't tell you to do. If you're choosing to disobey his law. So committing our work to the Lord has a way of forcing us to pray and say, is this really something you would want me to do? But there's a second aspect of saying, no matter what I do, and no matter how hard I work, I've got to commit it to you. Because at the end of the day, you have to put it all together. I can give you all of the pieces, but you have to put it all together. I can make my own plans and my own ideas of how things should go, but actually you're the only one who can establish anybody's plans. And this is what Proverbs would have to tell us about our work. Are we excited to know that God's grace enables us to work for him? That the words that we use can have meaning when we follow them up with actions. And that we can submit and turn everything we do over to him in prayer. Asking him to establish them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father... There are some that are here today and they are working hard for something that does not satisfy. They are working hard for a master that has no grace and no forgiveness. They're storing up wages that will result in death. And Father, we pray that through your spirit you would help them to see that they need to stop. To stop investing in that which does not satisfy. And to see you as a master and a Lord who is gracious who gives every gift we need and who forgives us for every failure we make. Father, give us a vision of who you are that inspires us to work hard for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.